and they had about 26 inches of snow on campus, but they managed to have kind of a shift full of DJs and staff stay at the station throughout the worst part of the storm to keep the station on the air. On today's show, we learn how one college station weathered the massive snowstorm that blanketed the Northeast. Paul Harvey. Have you ever heard of Paul Harvey? He was a daily radio broadcaster, and he was an enormous suck-up to J. Edgar Hoover. Matthew Lassar digs into the FBI's vaults to uncover the files it has on prominent radio broadcasters, and we review the FCC's decision to have radio stations put some of their public documents into an online database. What does this mean for stations and for listeners? Hello and welcome to Radio Survivor, a podcast, a radio program about the radio that matters. Community radio, college radio, low power FM, and internet radio uh, when we like it. My name is Eric Klein. I'm one of your producers of this podcast. I'm joined by two other producers of the podcast. Hi, I'm Paul Reismandel. And I'm Jennifer Waits. Jennifer is joining us via Skype. We're so happy to have her today for for the balance of of uh, of the program, not just the the little college radio watch. Uh, not so little. It's, it's a it's an anchor of the show. Right, right. I was, oh, I was thank trying you. to I was trying to think of the metaphor for <laughs> for when we for when we compartmentalize college radio watch That's instead right. of letting it spread its wings. The moral compass. <laughs> the college radio moral <laughs> compass that I like so much. I think so, and. And uh, we'll just jump into what's going on here in college radio. It's something which we like to keep track of because, I mean, in many ways, this is the next generation of broadcasters are in college radio, whether they go into community or low power FM, many of them go into, you know, sort of commercial broadcasting or television or movies, but so many people get their start in college radio. It's this really vibrant place, not just as a training ground, but for students to learn, you know, people skills, management skills, and also to be artistic and uh, find new avenues for expression. That's right. And also uh, one of the things I learned here working on this podcast is that uh, the world of college radio does not just mean uh, college students on the air. Uh, a whole lot of college radio in this country are, in fact, uh, the the listener-sponsored community radio stations. Uh, it just depends on, well, there's a spectrum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a wide spectrum that, that Jennifer presents to us every week. And you've got a couple of stories to share with us this week, and one has to do with, well, the recent blizzard that, I don't know if we'd say devastated, but definitely blanked out uh, pretty much the Northeast uh, uh, almost two weeks ago now. Yes, um, Jonas, I guess, is what we call the storm. And, um, you know, places like New York City had travel bans, um, in the afternoon one day because the snow was so heavy. So they shut down various above ground transportation. People weren't allowed to drive. Um, so it's interesting to think about how this affected college radio stations. And we got a report from WSOU, which is at Seton Hall University in New Jersey. And they remained on the air, like probably a lot of stations did, um, But they had particular challenges because the campus was closed because of the snow, and they had about 26 26 inches of snow on campus. (laughs) Um, So people couldn't really get around, but they managed to have kind of a shift full of DJs and staff 
stay at the station throughout the worst part of the storm to keep the station on the air. Um, and pretty much like the people who were there stayed because people couldn't really get around campus. So they hunkered down and continued broadcasting, you know, kind of a slumber party of yeah. sorts that, <laughs> at WSOU. That, that kind of severe weather uh, over over a, a multiple day period, uh, that's to me that that is community radio. That's when that's when I mean that's when I will turn on my local radio because I know that the people on the air broadcasting are 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 right there with me in the same weather. And then also, uh, in best case scenarios, they're plugged into sources of information that are that are useful mm-hmm. to the listener. And I'm glad to hear that WSOU was able to find a way to stay on the air because um, I do think that is true community service and one of the the biggest you know reasons behind maintaining you know broadcast and not making everything go cellular or go over the internet right because people lose their power yeah exactly people lose their power and they and they can might have a battery operated radio or a car radio or something that they can rely upon um to continue to stay in touch my wonder though how many other college stations were able to stay on the air how many went went off the air and i'm sure it's not something which is widely reported, <laughs> you know, I don't think we get press releases from the stations that, uh, that didn't stay on the air, but, but I don't exactly. know if you have any sense for that <laughs> at all, Jennifer. Not for this particular storm, but I can, I can tell you, um, my own anecdote from a year ago, I was in Kentucky right after there was a pretty major amount of snow. I mean, not to the degree of, of the storm Jonas, but I was on the University of Kentucky campus, and that's where WRFL is. And when I got to the station, there were just a handful of people there, and the station manager arrived, and he told me that was the first time he'd been to the station in days because the weather had been so bad that people couldn't really get around. So they relied on students who lived on campus to keep the station going because they could walk to the station. But anybody who had to drive, um, it, it was impossible for them to get there. But they stayed on the air throughout bad weather because they had students who lived nearby on campus. And so I'd imagine that's the case at a lot of schools, um, that you have kids on campus who are, who are always able to reach the station. Yeah, they're resident. And that's sort of an advantage that college radio might enjoy over just about any other radio because there might be housing literally steps away from uh, where your station is. It reminds me of uh, way back in episode two or so of, call it, of of Radio Survivor where we were talking about low-power FM community radio stations that uh, were walkable stations, like that, you, you, that all the community DJs could walk down the block to their radio station. Uh, because, right, because it's, a, it's got a, yeah. a small broadcast so radius, course, that's so exactly, it's hyper-local. That's exactly what a college radio station is in the best case scenario. In some ways, yeah. Although I do recall um, at WNUR at uh, Northwestern University where I was advisor, uh, we did have one super severe blizzard where we had to make the call to shut down the station because the uh, winds were so bad. And the and the studios are are just steps from Lake Michigan, that it was complete whiteout conditions, and so public safety said they they really did not want anyone who wasn't basically a, an employee and properly trained, like a public safety professional, anywhere on campus, because they were really worried that someone could walk out the station and actually literally walk into the lake. 
because wow. you wouldn't be able to see. And I do remember that. And we wouldn't be able to, and we had to make that call and we didn't really want to make that call. Uh, cause otherwise the station had a great history of being able to stay on the air during snowstorms. Uh, Chicagoans in particular are very proud of their ability to withstand just about any, any sort of severe weather that might come their way. But this was a, and just to give you a sense of this uh, scope of this storm, it had, the wind surges were so bad that it washed out Lakeshore Drive. And there were public buses, CTA buses, stranded full of people on Lakeshore Drive because it was flooded out by, by the waves they coming over. They found themselves on an island. <laughs> Basically, wow. that we call Lakeshore Drive. Um, you know, but otherwise, we would make every effort to sort of stay on the air. And usually at a university, even if they shut down, there's usually like public safety staff, usually some kind of uh, janitorial or uh, – or staff that do like kind of heating HVAC operations because they need to make sure like the heat stays on. And sometimes there even might be research staff because there's certain types of research where you can't just drop and run away and like say the biological sciences or other hard sciences. But yeah, it may be that your, your radio station is one of the only, you know, really operational offices otherwise beyond that. Yeah. And, and often you have that responsibility, um, you know, because you might be the station that has to transmit emergency messages um, and weather alerts. I was a DJ at a station in Ohio, at a college radio station in Ohio, and that always terrified me because I'm a California native. And so I was really afraid of the weather radio and of tornado warnings coming in because I knew we were supposed to stay there to, you know, make sure that we were getting the information out. (laughs) But I found it very terrifying. You weren't in the basement? Well, we were, like many stations, but... I was still terrified. <laughs> as, as you should have been. As yes. I mean, most, uh, I mean, so college radio stations, like every broadcast station in the U.S. is required to participate in the emergency alert system. Uh, and this is a network of stations uh, that broadcast whenever there's an alert. And the system is now mostly automated, but it, it only works if you're on the air. So, you know, right. so in the time that you were uh, probably broadcasting, Jennifer, it would have been you would have had to pay attention to this machine and 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 manually put through the uh, the alert. Now, oh, yeah. if, now, if it's in the case of a, of a I guess there are different levels of alert that I don't know off the top of my head. But if it's a severe enough alert, it just takes over your signal. Yes, it does. And just puts it out over the air. But of course, you have to be broadcasting in order for that that to even happen in the first place. So uh, great thumbs up there to the folks at WSOU. They're definitely one of the uh, sort of most prominent college radio stations in the country. And I, I mean, they're very popular in New Jersey. I remember them from when I grew up in New Jersey and I was a big fan because I was a metalhead and they're an all heavy metal station. Yeah. <laughs> and if you were out there uh, under the influence of, of the weather event that they called Jonas and you're, and you're aware of a, a community or college radio station that stuck it out on the air and provided a service. Let us know, give, uh, give, give us a ring and tell us that story at uh, podcast at radio Yeah. Especially college stations. I would love to hear about it. Um, and an interesting aside at my undergraduate university that I attended, um, a student there decided to relaunch the station as an internet station during a storm when the campus was closed. So he took that as an opportunity. Like I'm stuck in my room, so I might as well launch the station I've been trying to launch. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Instead of playing Xbox or, yeah. uh, or, or partying, um, he went out and started a station. I know it was a good use of time. It was supposed to launch maybe a few months later, but he was like, I'm just going to launch it now, you know, <laughs> why not? And, and he felt like it would bring people together. Right. Um, because maybe they weren't, 
if you're staying in your dorm and your friends across campus, you know, because of the storm, then they could kind of share in this new radio station experience. Indoor really activities. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> right. And your second story is a bit of a mystery of sorts. It is a bit of a mystery. Um, and this is something that we heard um, in the beginning of January that the station at Columbia University, WKCR, um, suddenly took down its stream, um, which is which is rather unusual. You know, I would say that I, I really don't know of that many terrestrial college radio stations that don't also have an online stream. Um, but they posted... WKCR posted an announcement on their website on December 26 um, that reads, as of January 1st, WKCR has no longer been able to provide online programming. We are in the process of renegotiating the contract that allows us to legally stream our content over the internet and will update you as soon as possible. We regret that we are unable to provide this service. WKCR will continue to broadcast on 89.9 FM and 89.9 HD1 radio as we work towards a long-term solution. Um, And I reached out to them to the email that they provided on that announcement and haven't heard anything back. Um, So we don't know why they took down the stream. Of course, there's, you know, lots of speculation about it. Um, it even reached been, the New York Times, like the New York Times covered I it know. and was speculating because there's so many listeners huh. to the online stream. It's, it's, it's a fairly well-established and well-listened to station in, in New York City. Yeah, and they do, um, you know, one thing that I wonder about, they do a lot of marathon type programming where they're focusing on a particular artist or genre. Um, so I kind of wonder if they got spooked by some of the rules about airing the same artists, you know, more than a certain number of times on an online stream. That's my wonder. Um, and then also there's, there's all this stuff going on right now with rates for streaming. So that could regular radio survivor podcast listeners will be well aware of, (laughs) you know, we've been, if, in case you haven't, in case you want a a primer and you, and you're not a regular listener, the all, all, every episode of 2016 has been somewhat or, entirely devoted to the new rate structure for streaming online web stations, although those aren't supposed to impact no, they don't apply. radio stations. Yeah, so the rates that college stations, any qualified educational institution or nonprofit, their rates have barely changed in 2016. The only rates that have changed in any significant way are the ones that commercial webcasters pay. And so not broadcast stations, but Pandora, all the way down to your little tiny independent Internet only stations. They see their rate. They saw their rate skyrocket. But the rates for Columbia University should not have changed in any significant sort of way. They should be basically more or less about what they paid in 2015. So isn't this more about um, the bandwidth? Perhaps. Who knows? That's what we it don't, sounded yeah, like. Yeah, we don't even know. I mean, that that's the question, right? So, and because it, it's the the wording is is curious because they talked about being able to legally stream, right? Is, mm-hmm. Isn't that the word they used? Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it really wonder. I really wonder, um, and could, it, it could be a case. And, and again, I am speculating because we do not know. It could be the case that perhaps they got behind in their royalty payments. Oh, okay. So if we were, there was a time not long ago in which a number of college stations were um, advised that they did not have to pay performance royalties right. at all. We covered this. We covered this back then. 
just a little bit. And then it became clarified that that was not true and that that college stations were liable to pay these performance royalties. Um, but there had they had some had received this advice that, they, that it did not apply to them and that was resolved. Could be that they got behind and need to need to uh, come up um, again. My experience with Sound Exchange is that it's an organization which which collects the royalties that they'll work with you. Yeah, they're not really interested, as far as I can tell, in shutting down college broadcasters. Right, and of course, this is all uh, related to the idea that when you're a terrestrial radio station, the um, the way in which you pay the music industry for for what you play over the air has all been very routinized, routinized and streamlined, and it's uh, it's kind of a brand new regime yeah. when it comes to online. Uh, not to mention that there's a a whole other set of uh, bills to pay yeah. online. The performance royalties. The performance royalties. The, yeah. the, the, the payment that goes to the artist that played the song, which is um, not how uh, traditional radio pays right. for Tr- music. Yeah, terrestrial radio does not pay In performance the royalties. States. They pay songwriter royalties only. Yeah. Online radio pays both songwriter royalties and performance royalties. Yeah. Yeah, so there's speculation but no news and the reason it comes across our radar is because WKCR has a lot of listeners and they're kind of concerned and upset about losing uh losing the stream. Yeah, we we want to yeah. know why. Yeah, you know, because they have programming that is appealing to people all over the country and suddenly those people are shut out of being able to listen. So it's, you know, it's a big deal and it makes me wonder, in fact, it'd be great if other stations contacted us because I'd be curious to know if there are other college radio stations that have a terrestrial signal and have decided not to stream anymore. Yeah. I mean, I've worked at stations that just simply had technical problems with the stream, right? Where right. <laughs> where where your server goes down, or you're you're having problem with the local computer, or your local or internet service goes down, and all sorts of things like that. You know, because these things happen, um, and I, I can just recall, you know, emails coming in almost immediately saying, "Why are you down?" And 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 immediately, there's always one emailer who who who's jumps to some conspiracy theory and said oh i knew it happened eventually because of this show what you know it'll be usually some political show they finally got to you or you finally had to you know <laughs> you know the left wing talk show is finally uh being being silenced by <laughs> by the fcc or being silenced by yep. somebody right you're That's like right. no uh, the the computer <laughs> broke and <laughs> He ordered a replacement. Yeah, a likely story. <laughs> Isn't it fascinating that in 2016, uh, we take it for granted that all radio stations with an audience must also be online. It's the same. It's a requirement. Yeah. And yet not all, not all are, even uh, across commercial stations in the U.S. Sure. and across uh, non-commercial stations. Not all are, even even so. I do half of my local radio listening over the internet just just because of the devices I own now. Well, yeah, I I mean the station that I DJ at is a 40-minute drive from where I live, so I can't I can't get it terrestrially in my house. So I'm really grateful that there's a stream and that I have an internet radio. So it feels like I'm listening to it on a radio, yeah. but it's an internet radio. Yep, can't take all that stuff for granted, though. No. I know. It's, it's extra can't. work and it's extra money for all our radio stations. So we'll keep following that story. And of course, you can read Jennifer's college radio news updates every single Friday as part of her college radio watch feature at radiosurvivor.com. 
We'll be back in a few minutes to review some additional news of an important FCC decision. But first, Eric checked in earlier this week with Matthew Lassar. Matthew Lassar, welcome to the Radio Survivor Podcast. Thanks. So you wrote, um, so you wrote a post in in 2012 about the FBI's radio files, which which means that uh, documents were made public that reveal the uh, uh, one version of history where the Federal Bureau of Investigation is monitoring uh, both both the airwaves and the personalities on the airwaves. Well, let me let me give you some background. I teach at UC Santa Cruz, and I teach history courses at UC Santa Cruz. And one of the courses I teach is a course about the Federal Bureau of Investigation. It's a senior research seminar in which students go to a website that the FBI provides called vault.fbi.gov, which um, has all of these Freedom of Information Act files about hundreds and hundreds of people whom the FBI has done surveillance of. Now, why does the FBI have this site? You know, that's a very good question because (laughs) um, – you would think that they would keep it all a secret. But thanks to the Freedom of Information Act, they have to disclose these files if they're asked for them. So I think that what they just basically said was, oh, heck with it. Why don't we just post them all up there? And that way, when people want them, they can just get them. And we don't have to just you know, constantly be sending them to people. So there's PDFs of all of these different individuals. The most famous, of course, people like Martin Luther King Jr., the Black Panthers, um, Various left, various liberals and leftists who were, um, you know, accused of being uh, communists during the McCarthy era. Marilyn Monroe has a has a file. Ernest Hemingway has a file. And I have my students go through these files and write um, research papers about sure. what the well, what the FBI was looking for. And of course, that's one hat that I have. And the other hat I have is I write about radio. And so I posted an article about the various people who have been involved with radio over the um, years who have wound up getting FBI files. And what you can find at vault.fbi.gov of various individuals who were, you know, surveyed by the FBI, but they also uh, were involved in radio. Okay. So where to start? There's a long history, right? There's all kinds of, there's all kinds of people. Who were involved in this? One of them was Paul Harvey. Have you ever heard of Paul Harvey? I I don't think I know who Paul Harvey is at all. Paul, I, he's got Paul a Har- deep voice, and he does Paul, he does boring documentaries, a, right? No, he was a he was a guy who was a longtime radio broadcaster for ABC, and um, I I think I recall he had a I thought that he had a rather strange voice. He he tended to space out his comments in long strange ways. But he was a very he was a conservative, and he was a you know he was he was a daily radio broadcaster, and he was an enormous suck up to J. Edgar Hoover, the um, <laughs> head of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and he corre- and he for thirty years he corresponded with the bureau on all kinds of issues. Essentially, he functioned sort of as an informer, sometimes complaining about people whose politics he didn't like, and you can go and you can. Look up his file. And a typical thing in his file were letters between him and J. Edgar Hoover in which they basically were just complimenting each other. Here's a letter. This is just a note to tell you how much I appreciate the talk you made at 10 p.m. last weeknight over the ABC radio network. That's J. Edgar Hoover writing to Harvey. Hmm. Your, your remarks point out 
the most clearly the evil of communism and the necessity for every patriotic American to view the problem seriously. But Harvey actually got into trouble in 1951. He went to um, a atomic energy facility and in, in order to show that it was not secure and that this is a big issue, he got a security guard or somebody to get him over the fence and he wound up being um, charged with um, with breaking and entering into a federal facility and there was a big trial and eventually he was um, acquitted. And you can read all his, his FBI files at vault.fbi.gov. That's quite a strange uh, – that's quite a strange anecdote. Yeah. Then, then another person who was, who, was very, who was very much into radio, um, you wouldn't think this because uh, you probably associate him with a movie, was Groucho Marx. Sure. Groucho Marx had a show called You Bet Your Life. And uh, he was well, – he often appeared on the radio during his career. You Bet Your Life was a quiz show. And it was just sort of a fun red yeah. party show. I've seen and, the I've seen the television version. Yeah, here. and then there was a, then then came a television version, and the FBI followed him for years and years and years because they very strongly suspected that he was a member of the Communist Party, which they never actually proved. Sure. Well, if you watch the Marx Brothers movies, uh, they they enjoyed beating up uh, people wearing top hats. Yes, they so did. It's clear it's clear that they had some sort of uh, class consciousness as the Jewish immigrants that they were. And if you read his, if you read, if you read his file, it mentions your bet, your life, and they're trying to decide whether he was a communist or not. Los Angeles informants familiar. I'm reading from the FBI files. Los Angeles informants familiar with TP activity in Hollywood, motion picture, and radio industry through 1940s state that Marx was never affiliated with CP, never contributor, so far as informants are aware. Um, but it, but the Daily Worker in 1934 quoted Marx as saying. Quote, the battle of the communists for the lives of the Scottsboro boys, nine young African-American men falsely accused of rape in Alabama, is one that will be taught um, as the most inspiring and courageous battle ever fought. So he was, Groucho Marx was definitely a leftist, but he wasn't involved with the Communist Party. And the, the uh, Jagger Hoover's FBI spent most of his career just sort of, you know, watching him mm. uh, to see whether... Um, to see, to see whether he, he really was or commie or not. But a lot of people wound up having files and never knowing that they had files. I don't, I'm not even sure that Groucho Marx ever knew that he had a, that he had a file. But you can go to vault.fbi.gov <laughs> and um, you can look at his file uh, now. The same thing for um, Studs Terkel. Yeah, this, now I'm excited because I actually uh, I know more than a little bit about the radio career of Studs Terkel. And Studs Terkel was – regularly dossiered by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Uh, I'm reading here from his file. This is a report from the FBI. Confidential informant, and it's redacted, whose identity is known to the Bureau, informed this office on June 4th, 1942, that Louis Turkle seemed to use the current Daily Worker, communist newspaper, as a source of much of his information and information following featured phases of the Communist Party line, namely praising USSR, Russian War Relief Incorporated, racial angles, worker quotes, um, critical of Winston Churchill, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they, were, they basically were just – they were on him all the time, um, constantly listening to his radio broadcasts, constantly following his app 
activities hmm. um, um, through through his career. I'm reading for something else. Informant stated that instructor at the school, um, I think this is um, some school, I'm not quite sure which school, um, uh, made an appointment with him, uh, reported that the extension school department of the school held a meeting in the Ida B. Wells Community Center for the purpose of discussing the Negro Citizen Looks at San Francisco Conference. Informant stated that Stud Turkle acted as a moderator. So my guessing is, is that many of these things okay. that we're talking about are things that Turkle didn't do on the radio um, per se, but he, you know, he, he made public appearances at various community organizations and things like that, and you know, civil rights groups and things like that, and he promoted his books and he supported these groups. And um, I think that the that chances are that the Federal Bureau of Investigation showed up at these things and basically wrote down what he said and, and put it in his file. Yeah. Um, another individual who has a big file was Daniel Shore of National Public Radio. He was a he was an NPR commentator for a very very long time, um, and uh, the FBI started keeping track. He, he, and he and he prior to that he worked for CBS and he he goes all the way back to Edward R. Murrow, and he was kind of a liberal. He covered the White House a lot, and Richard Nixon um, in the um, in the high point of Richard Nixon's uh, President Richard Nixon's total Watergate internal hysteria paranoia conniption fit period, um, 1971 1972 started asking for data um, on him, and he wound up on Richard Nixon's um, famous enemies list, mm-hmm. and. Um, the FBI claims the special inquiry – I'm quoting from the FBI statement on the Shore file. The special inquiry investigation ended as soon as the Bureau realized that it had been requested for political reasons. Um, I wonder <laughs> – I, I, I kind of – I'm laughing here because I can't imagine the FBI didn't know from the get-go that it was requested for political reasons. But that's what they're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, another really interesting and – really less well-known person was a woman named Iva uh, Tuguri de Aquino, um, who was the nom diplome, who was, who was one of the women who was known during the Second World War as Tokyo Rose. Um, and she's a woman who went back to Japan, I think, to take care of some family members. She was an American, Japanese-American. She was an American, went back to Japan take care of some family members. She got stuck in Japan and she got forced to be um, one of the Tokyo Rose broadcasters. Mm-hmm. Um, and when she came back to the United States, um, they uh, basically um, indicted her um, for treason and, uh, um, and, 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 and various uh, reporters and enemies of her basically came to the court hearing and gave very exaggerated accounts of what she had said over the airwaves. And eventually she was, she was pardoned um, because it was very clear that she had basically been framed. And the FBI files are really interesting because they include transcriptions of the zero hour program, as it was called, associated with Tokyo Rose broadcasts. And she didn't do, she didn't do any propaganda against the United States. She just basically played music and sang, you know, and, and, and played songs and made friendly kind of comments. And she really made a point of not saying anything bad or basically or attacking um, the troops or anything like that. And she really didn't want to be there. And she was basically kind of framed. Mm-hmm. But what's fun about the file is, is that um, you, re- you get these transcriptions of the Tokyo Rose broadcasts. 
And in retrospect, the, sound, the show sounds like it was kind of, kind of fun, kind of fun to listen to, at least um, some of the time. And so you really get a sense of how those broadcasts worked and how they were structured and what music was played. And if you know if you're a radio historian like me, it's really interesting I, to look at them. I need. I want to know how. So was this radio? This was this Japanese war propaganda that you could yeah. listen to in English? Uh, yes, it was. It was. It was Japanese on, war propaganda on the Pacific that, coast. That you, that, on the Pacific coast that the troops could listen to. And um, how did how did the how did Japan pull that one off? Well, they you know they had um, access to a lot you know a large portion of the pacific they could um they could broadcast via shortwave oh, okay. so that you know so the the troops could hear their the troops could hear their broadcast and the troops couldn't hear a lot of things uh so you know one broadcast I'll read to you from one broadcast this is monday wash day for some rifle cleaning for some and for the others just another day for play let's all get together and forget those wash day blues here is Kay Kaiser, Sonny Mason, and the Playmates, so come join the parade. Kay Kaiser was a big band leader in the 1930s and the 1940s. That's the sort of thing that she broadcast. And uh, obviously she shouldn't have been convicted of anything. She was stuck in a bad situation. It's just an interesting chapter of World War II history. Last but not least, um, one of my favorites is the FBI's file on the song Louie Louie. Yeah, this is this is too much. The song Louie Louie uh, was redone by the Kingsmen in the early 1960s. And you've heard the song and it's almost impossible to tell what the lyrics are. It's such a bad version of the song. And like millions of Americans, the Bureau suspected that the slurringly sung song concealed a host of dirty words. And so for about a year and a half, the FBI went around to radio stations. It went around to high school students. And, it, you know, it, it, they, it, the FBI was told, well, well, you know, if you play the song at 33 RPM, even though it's a 45, or you play it at 78 RPM, even though it's a 45, you'll actually hear the real lyrics. Um, but eventually the uh, FBI concluded, based on a limited investigation, that's what they called it, that there was no evidence of obscenity. <laughs> a limited four-month investigation. It in went on and on forever. Um, um, <laughs> Where they had it, to ask uh, high school kids to tell them what the song lyrics were. Yes. Because they eventually, couldn't... Eventually, <laughs> eventually they gave up and concluded that they were wasting their time. It also uh, There was also a Justice Department investigation and a Federal Communications Commission um, uh, investigation. Your tax dollars at work. My the my take on that, I, I, I always understood it was that... Um, there is the an f bomb right when the guitar solo uh, he yeah, flubs they, he flubs a line right that they 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 he flubs they, a lick they, they, and Aiden Herrick who writes for us and who was a student of mine and who took my FBI class and who <laughs> writes for Radio Survivor now he's the um, uh, record librarian for KZSC you may have seen some of his posts on Radio Survivor he actually wrote a great research paper which is available on Radio Survivor. Um, about the history of the FBI's investigation of Louis Louis. Okay, well, we'll have to have a link to that one in the show notes for certain, as well as a link, of course, to to your 2012 uh, blog post uh, titled "The FBI's Radio Files: A Quick Guide." Yes. Yeah. Well, Matthew, I appreciate I appreciate the quick guide. It's always a pleasure. Always a pleasure, Eric, and thank you very much. Thank you, Matthew and Eric. And up next, 
You know, there is some important news from the FCC, a uh, FCC decision that was just handed down by the full commission that I think is important, not just for radio stations, especially non-commercial stations, but actually important for listeners. So what I'm going about to talk about is, may sound kind of arcane or technical, but actually has a great deal of importance when we think about radio's public service and the fact that uh, radio stations use the public airwaves in exchange, ostensibly, for operating in the public interest. So on January 28th, the FCC made a decision that is going to require all radio stations to place what is known as their public file online. So to give some background, a public file is an actual file of documents that the FCC requires every broadcast station Even to maintain. Even te- television stations. Tele- every broadcast station of all types to maintain on their station pr- premises. So it contains something, things like the uh, station's license, documentation of its compliance with equal opportunity hiring requirements. Uh, it has its ownership report, which it files at the FCC. It has something called its quarterly issues and programming reports. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a log of programs that a station is required to keep that basically shows how it's addressing issues of community interest. So this is generally around public affairs and news programming. Yeah. And you're required to document, you know, so if, if there is and, – and it's up to the station actually to determine what these issues are. But to say, okay, uh, here's what we've done with regard to health and safety issues. Here's what we've done with regard to economic issues and document all the programs and how the program addressed that issue. And this is not just for the community radio stations or the news radio stations of the world. If you're if you're a pop music top 40 station, you're still supposed to have community benefits yeah. Is and that is that really real in 2016? Because I know re- that that was important in the 1960s. It is really real if toothless. Uh-huh. So you're required to keep this log. And what you'll find is at a pop station, you may tune in at like 5 a.m. on Sunday and hear a public affairs program. And it could even be syndicated. It. it might be local. Uh-huh. Right. Well, how do you prove it? Is you go over to the station. Right. So this, this is the question is prior to this decision, uh, very recent, to have these records online, if you as a radio reporter or listener or a listener wanted this information, how easy was it to access? Well, by the law, you're supposed to be able to walk up during business hours to the studio. Okay, so location that's already a privilege to have some time and say, let me see this. You can also make a request by mail or by email. Okay. And they are supposed to make copies and send it to you. Jennifer, have you ever asked for that information from a radio station? I have. <laughs> yeah. How easy, how how nice well, were they to you? Um. Well, it actually makes people really nervous. Um, <laughs> That's what I expected. I, like, why, I have, why are you bothering me? I have a very awkward story to recount that there was a station that I really, 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 really wanted to visit and I kept getting put off. And, and I actually said, what if I wanted to see your public file? (laughs) And, and that, uh, anyway, that helped me to get the visit, but it also really pissed them off. Right. Well, but, and the thing is, 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 (laughs) because it felt like, it felt like a threat because normally the people who come to visit your public file, probably, unless it's the FCC and it's just a routine thing, um, 
often, you know, it can be people who are up to no good, who are trying to dig up dirt on your station. Yeah, axe grinding. Well, not necessarily up to no good, but yes, who 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 have an, who are looking to bone to pick. Who have a bone to pick or looking to verify that your station is actually operating. Because basically all this public file is, is documentation that your station is operating according to the rules that apply to broadcast stations. And somebody who has been responsible for a public file, it is not difficult to maintain. It is something, you know, you work it into a routine, you make it part of your station operation, and you put the documents in there. If you can't document the issues and programs, you know, the issues that you're covering on your station, well, then maybe you're doing something wrong is the way I look at it. So while I do understand that it is a certain amount of overhead and burden to, to have to do this in exchange for that license, which, as we understand, even a non-commercial college license could be worth millions of dollars, it seems like a very little to me, a little, very little effort for a lot of, of upside. And you said toothless because if a radio station has the weakest excuse for for this sort of information, uh, not not the weakest excuse for like an informational program, like well, just like well, one sentence, we did it, we did the, you know, one of our DJs said this on the air this week, and that's that's all their it's community service. It's largely not all. qualitative, right? It's it's largely the fact that you've documented it. Right there, I, I I've not seen a case of a fine to a station in at least the last ten years for the quality of they their issues e for and programming report. What they get fined for is not having filed them, and and that's why when when I mentioned it, I think Jennifer, why you kind of chuckled <laughs> and went ooh because you know that college stations often get hit for that, right? Because they have the maybe most difficulty with paperwork. Yeah. The quarterly issues and programs report. Um, it's notorious for college stations falling behind on those. Our college stations have, um, have staff that's ever changing. And so if the students are responsible for those reports and they don't pass on that job to the next person, it can kind of fall by the wayside. Um, and then when it comes time for renewal, um, license renewal, the station turns in its application and it's asked, you know, about its quarterly issues and program reports. And if you say that they're missing and they are missing, you could get fined for that. So it's it's something that stations need to keep on top of. It's not a big deal if you're actually writing down the information every quarter. And and I've actually looked in public files at stations that I've toured just for fun, not to be, you know, antagonistic or anything. And um and I've seen some beautiful files where it's super simple. Um, but, you know, if you fall behind, it can become a crazy chore that you really don't want to have to deal with after the fact. I can imagine that the work that goes into that file uh, could serve two additional benefits to the college station that both are things that we've talked about here on Radio Survivor. One is this idea that it is a nice idea for college radio stations to document uh, why they matter in case someone outside of the station's culture comes knocking, uh, namely the the people responsible for that station's license, the 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 um the regents of the university, for instance, who who might not be familiar with what's going on at the college station. Um, the contents of this file might be a perfect example of why this station matters to the to the community. I mean, that's its point. I mean, that's really the point. 
all together to just demonstrate why the station is doing good community service. That's not all that goes in the file. And then the other thing I was thinking of was the idea that um, as time goes by, it's a historical document right. that helps generations understand what this radio station has been up to. Uh, even though the same human beings are no longer sitting in the same seats. So I don't think people keep them. You're only only required to keep them for a license cycle, so seven years. And I think just for sheer space issues, I think a lot of people just throw them in the recycling. Perhaps that is going to change because of this online? I don't know. We don't know that. Wouldn't that be nice? We don't know. Archive.org will keep track of them all. Yeah, it's possible. When I go to college radio conferences, there are often legal panels where lawyers talk about public files. And most lawyers, I think, want you to remove items that don't need to be in there after the date when they don't need to be in there. Um, Probably out of fear, like if there is something that's not quite right, just get it out of there. If it doesn't need to be there, just keep keep what you need for the moment Um, because it is sort of a legal it is it is sort of a batch of legal documents if you can think about it that way too. Right. You don't wanna you don't wanna provide something for someone going on a fishing expedition, even if it might not hold any sway with the FCC, you don't in the event that it holds sway with some other sort of public opinion, you don't wanna provide that extra little bit of breadcrumb to people. But isn't that a shame that, that college radio stations Well that's in, every radio station. And radio stations have to be that defensive that they can't even hold on to their history. Well because you well they can hold on to it, they just need to put it into a different file. Okay. <laughs> they just need to move it <laughs> to someplace besides the public yeah. file. No, you may not look at this file. <laughs> right. Wow. Well there's that should be most of your files, I would think. And that's some of the challenge of putting public files online is that suddenly everybody has instant access to it. So it's going to be much easier for people to go in on fishing expeditions, like Paul said, and take a look like, oh, you right. know, is there so, something not quite right? So I'll get into that in a second because that, there, that is about the ruling because it gets a little bit more, uh, you know, there's a bit more to it. But the other things we should point out that that, that – Commercial stations additionally are required to keep a political file that records every request to buy commercial time by a qualified political candidate um, and also saying how it responded to that request, including how much was paid for any airtime. That's fascinating. So and that's also and that's often something, especially in TV, that rival candidates will will request those particular documents to make sure they're that their candidate that they're stumping for or advertising for isn't being shut out unfairly. So, and then finally, uh, commercial stations are also required to keep a file of correspondence from the public. So if somebody has emailed complaints or comments and things like this, they're required to also keep a record of this and put them in the file. Non-commercial stations used to be required to do that. And at some point uh, in the last uh, 10, 15 years, the FCC uh, killed that requirement for non-commercial stations. This is just like such a happy day for Radio Survivor, the website. There's so much more material now to examine when we have questions. <laughs> well, maybe or maybe not. We'll see. Um, first of all, this isn't happening right of way. This is not happening tomorrow. So, um, yes, stations will be required to upload their public file information into an FCC-maintained database. So this will be at the FCC, not at the individual stations. Television stations already are required to comply. So this has already happened for TV stations. It begins going into effect later this year for commercial stations in the top 50 markets with at least five full-time employees. 
So the idea basically here is, is that the stations that have ostensibly the most resources are the ones who are going to be required to begin complying first. To give you an idea, the number 50 market is Oklahoma City. So every sort of market bigger than Oklahoma City, Oklahoma City and bigger, will be required to begin complying, but only commercial stations and only those that have five employees. All other stations will have until March 1st of 2018 to begin complying. Okie dokie. With the political broadcasting records in particular, they will only be required to begin uploading documents now that are relevant. So they won't be required to go back in time and put up documents for like, say, last year. Other documents, like your issues and programming uh, statements, those you'll be required to upload everything during your current license, license cycle. So a broadcast license is for seven years. So let's say if your last renewal was in uh, 2011, you will be required, you know, to go back to 2011 and upload all of those programs and issues and programming reports. So there will be some backdating, but only for the length of your current uh, licensing cycle. Um, there will be a six-month sort of grace period for those um, issues and programming statements and the annual um, uh, equal opportunity statements to have to go up. So once the rules go into effect, you'll have six months to get to come up, come up to speed basically uh, in, in all your documents. Other documents that are often in the public file are things like a copy of your license and renewal documents and ownership statements. Those are things you already file with the FCC. So the FCC will go ahead and just file that for you. So you won't have to kind of do double duty on those. We don't yet have the full text of the decision. So what we know is what was sort of said in the uh, in the uh, meeting when this was approved by the FCC. There's a press release. Then there's a press release, yeah, that we're basically going after, going on. So there was a, initially a proposal in the initial proposal for rulemaking that small stations or non-commercial broadcasters might be exempted altogether. That's not clear if that's made it into the final rulemaking. Ah, all this speculation that we've been speculating that's, is not necessarily – you know, when I saw this press release this week, that is the first thing that crossed my mind was non-commercial broadcasters um, because FCC has been more lenient on them in recent years for a variety of things. And and so I'm kind of hoping that they will as far as getting public files online. And and I, I will have to say, in my own personal opinion, is I think that non-commercial broadcasters should actually have to comply with this. Um. I do understand why they are concerned and feel like it's a lot of effort. I honestly don't understand why putting the files online is any more effort than sticking them into a file because of the fact that they probably were electronic to begin with. Almost nobody is writing these things on paper in longhand or typing them up on a typewriter. They're probably using a computer to keep all these records. And so I I'm, I'm I myself fail to see why it's an additional burden to have to uh, upload them rather than print them out and put them in a file. I, based on my experience at one particular non-commercial radio station, I just just speculating. It, the entire time that I worked there, which was almost a decade, there was a siege mentality. There was a and and you can imagine that yeah, more material for for the um, for the active critics who are who are uh, uh, engaged in multiple strategies to take down 
to, but the commercial right, broadcasters right. would make the same argument. Right. I mean, so I mean, I they think have this, the same community. Yeah, I mean, so it's not uncommon at all that during the normal uh, license renewal cycle, that uh, very organized groups will get together and and file petitions to deny for commercial television and radio okay. broadcasters. They go after them, but it almost never works. And so, when it, I think much, many of these fears, when it comes to the actual day to day practice, are not founded. It the it is so rare that a radio station is denied a license renewal that it's news in and of itself that it happens. Usually when it happens, it's because they failed to actually file the paperwork for renewal or there is some other tremendously extenuating circumstance. One of them is the, is, uh, the what's so-called uh, sort of public morals clause. So, for instance, uh, there was once a group of stations uh, owned by a guy who went to jail for for child molestation. Right. He lost his licenses. Otherwise, the likelihood that there's anything in that file that uh, the average person can use to sort of really uh, hurt a, a station is actually pretty low. In in my in my opinion, so there's it a very might just little be in there. Fear of this. I think new it's I think it's fear, right? Thing. And and so if you're sure at a station where fear rules, then you're going to be afraid of this. Um, but for the station, for most stations, I think it is yes, it's an it's it's a different burden. I'm not sure it's an additional burden, but it's a different burden. Um, and it's not any information that somebody couldn't have accessed before. Well, as an well, information I- nerd, oh, I'm sorry, Jennifer. As an information nerd, I'm excited. I'm glad I'm glad this stuff will be out there and easier to access with less uh, less labor and effort. Well, and I kind of wonder if I mean, it might be that the fact that it needs to be online, maybe that will mean less violations, actually, um, because I think if, if it's your file within your station, maybe it's more likely that a station will be lax about keeping on top of it. And but if you have to actually submit it, to the FCC online, it's possible that people might do a better job of keeping track of their issues and programs, et cetera. Exactly. And, and I think, you know, it may cause people to work a little harder at having a sort of internal solution. For instance, one solution I've seen that worked very well was somebody just simply developed uh, a Google Doc. And with a Google Doc, you can, you can put a front end on it that's a Google form. And all they said was that every public affairs a programmer was required to, during their show that week, fill out this form that answered a few questions and immediately put it into a spreadsheet, and then they printed out the spreadsheet. Someone went through and edited it a little bit, but otherwise, it was almost it was it was sort of not not any harder than filling out a playlist, which um, most DJs do at most stations everywhere. Um, you know, and and so that- you could automate this with using free tools that are online. And very easily have an electronic document that's almost ready to go with a little bit of editing and sorting. And having that sort of information out there where it's also accessible um, to fans of your radio station so that they know what was on – what archives they can go listen to. Like I, if, I, if you have archives. I wish you – I hope you do. I want <laughs> well, you to have archives of your yeah, music and public I, affairs I wouldn't, programming. Yeah, it would be very difficult to do that correlation. I don't think it would actually work All for right, that More fantasy land. More fantasy for, land. For Eric, Eric the radio nerd. <laughs> <laughs> but Eric, you're, Eric, you're right. You know, there should be lots of information on a website so that people know what topics were discussed on public affairs shows. Um, 
you know, even the station where I DJ, I think we could do a better job of saying, this is who a guest is going to be on this program this week. Um, you know, it, it helps. Especially, especially, yeah. I mean, for art and for politics, it helps. Um, yeah, definitely. When you have a, when you have a, an exciting artist or rock star, and then three weeks later, no one knows how to listen to that show anymore. Um, it'd be nice. And there's a couple of unknowns still. So I mentioned the first one that there could be an exemption for small stations or non-commercial broadcasters because it had been proposed, but it's not clear if that's actually in the actual rules. Another thing that's unclear is if listener correspondence will have to be included. And again, this would be from commercial stations. Currently, TV stations have not been required to do this. So it seems like the winds are blowing in a direction that stations will not be required to do this either. Radio stations. And then – there was a discussion at the meeting about allowing non-commercial stations to file for some kind of waiver to keep the names of donors out of their online file. Oh. Um, <laughs> so, non, so non-commercial stations are required to disclose donors who fund specific programming. Mm. They are not necessarily required to disclose donors to the station. So if you're sort of just someone who donates to KFJC – KFJC is not required to keep uh, you in this in this file in the public file. But if you are specifically underwriting a program or, or sponsoring a particular program, it's supposed to be in there. I know stations struggle with this distinction all the time because I've heard it argued that well, during pledge drives and someone calls in during the four o'clock drive time, they're under the impression that they're actually donating to a particular show, even if. It actually funds the entire station, so there should be in the file. Whereas someone else says, "Well, it doesn't. That doesn't matter. What matters is that it actually just goes into general station funds, and it shouldn't go in." I don't know what the right answer on not, that. Not is. Not to mention that donors yeah. who might have specific reasons for donating don't necessarily have to put that down on paper when they hand over the check to the, to right. the development. I director. think a lot of stations just sort of assume it's a general station donation, yeah, and even again, though they might say out loud to in. While making eye contact, well, but this, what is that, why I'm, this is why I'm giving well, you that doesn't, money. So an argument made that that doesn't matter. What yeah. matters is the actual flow of the monies. So if the, if, the, if the money is not ever earmarked internally in your accounting systems. Oh, that's funny. Right. Well, I mean, that's anything, right? I mean, yeah. how do you determine whether, you know, what any corporation spent on anything is you have to look for earmarked monies. So or monies that have been specifically earmarked. And, and by an earmark is, is to say this will be spent on this and nothing else. Like if a station gets a grant to fund uh, health programming, usually the grant will say, and this is not to be spent on, you know, buying uh, CD players. It's not to be spent on microphones and not to be spent on, you know, janitorial supplies, you know. So, I mean, you know, these distinctions are not that difficult to make. Um, But I do have understood that stations at times because, you know, good legal advice on this can be difficult to come by, um, have have struggled with this distinction. That's all I kind of wanted to say about that. So the FCC will be releasing the full text of this ruling soon. Um, it does not go into effect until it gets published in the Federal Register. So it does, in fact, have to be published in full in order for uh, for it to go into effect. And we will certainly update folks on the podcast and on uh, RadioSurvivor.com about, uh, the, about what we learn and what has changed, if anything, from what we know now. Okay. Well, thanks for bringing us that, that information, Paul. I hope it's useful, and, and, I, and I, I, I do want to sort of emphasize again that I think it's important for stations to continue to document how they comply with the public interest. And I think it is 
right for the public to want to know how stations are complying. And so I, I would prefer folks in community college and, and non-commercial radio not to look at this as some sort of witch hunt or, or some sort of uh, invas- invasion, uh, but rather, right, as, as you've sort of termed it, uh, Eric and, and Jennifer, uh, this sort of opportunity to demonstrate your station's value yeah. to your community. To reaffirm your mission, uh, both to yourself and to your community and to, to the people that, that volunteer and work at your station. Just see everyone everyone knows what the what they're there for. Absolutely. And also to potentially just stay on top of your requirements. <laughs> so if it makes it easier to comply by putting it online, then that might actually be a good thing. Hey there, this is Paul. I'm coming into this actually uh, just before we published the podcast this week because we actually had a question during recording that I was not able to answer uh, about the whole public file situation, the online public files. And Jennifer had asked if low-power FM stations will be required to comply with the new online public files. And in fact, uh, low-power FM stations are not actually required to keep a public file in the same way that a full power uh, non-commercial station is required to. However, they are required to keep that political file, as are all other non-commercial stations. So earlier I had stated that commercial stations are required to keep that political file. And I was correct, except I, I should have also mentioned that all radio stations are required to keep that political file, which will mention not just uh, any request to buy airtime, but any requests for airtime, period, uh, because there are still existing uh, statutes that require equal time, meaning if you give time to one candidate uh, for office, uh, federal office in particular, you're also required to give equivalent sort of time to an opposing candidate. Uh not enough time to get into those rules right now so much as uh, to say that um, it's required that any broadcast station, commercial or non-commercial, keep this file, keep a log of these requests, as well as uh, the ways in which those requests were fulfilled or granted if they were or if they were not, if they were denied, uh, why they were denied. And so this is something which low-bar FM stations will in the future be required to maintain. Um we presume as an online public file in which uh, they're required to keep right now the paper file, but otherwise all the uh, issues and programming reports um, and all those other reports, uh, which a college or full power uh, community station required to keep low power FM stations are not required to keep. Um, As we go to uh, release this show this week, um, we still haven't seen the full text of the FCC's ruling. But when we do, we will certainly update on any other open questions. And now uh, I'm going to return you back to the Radio Survivor Studio. Well, Jennifer, I'm so glad you could join us today for the bulk of the Radio Survivor program. It's been real nice to have you with us. I know. It's always nice to be with the both of you, even if it's virtual. Yeah. Over the interwebs. And we're so glad that uh, you, listener, take time to spend with us this week and listen to our show. Um, if you have any comments, any feedback, we love to hear from you. Send us an email podcast at radiosurvivor.com or you can tweet us at Radio Survivor or uh, drop a message on our Facebook page, which is also Radio Survivor on Facebook. And we have forums right. where there could be a discussion where lots of people can join in. That's at radiosurvivor.com 
slash forum. And we hope that you'll consider helping us continue to create this program with a little bit of financial support. You can do so through our Patreon campaign by uh, by pledging an amount that you give every month. It so it becomes automatic. It could be something as little as a dollar really helps us to keep moving along here. A dollar a month is very little money out of your pocket, uh, but it does a lot for us to help us continue producing both this radio show and uh, producing all of the coverage we do at radiosurvivor.com. So go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. Also, if you would leave us a review at iTunes, if you use iTunes at all, click some stars or leave us a review um, because that helps other people find the show, people who might be interested in what we do, and it brings more attention to the great radio that is happening out there and to the causes that we try to support. Um, so j- just go to iTunes, search for Radio Survivor Podcast, click some stars, or leave a message. Well, thank you, Eric, and thank you, Jennifer. Thanks. It was fun.